0: Good morning, Richmond. It's good to see you again this morning and really excited about continuing on in our series on the I Am statements of John. But I've been doing a lot of thinking about gates recently, which, if I'm honest, is not a phrase I ever thought I'd hear myself say. I can hear my younger self yawning hearing myself thinking about gates. And I haven't just been thinking about gates because I've known this sermon's coming up. Um, I'll put an image up on the screen as you can see. And we've got our young fella on the move now, so we've got baby gates popping up all around the house. Gates to keep him from going over a stair, gates to keep him from getting to fireplaces, gates to stop him from getting in to different rooms. And it's killed me on the inside seeing our house slowly become uglier and uglier, and he's sort of taken over. Previously all his toys were confined to one corner, but I'm starting to have to accept that the house is now more his than mine. But as these gates have popped up, one thing I can't deny is their usefulness. They're incredibly good at their function, at keeping some things in and keeping other things out. And on their surface, gates do seem pretty boring, perhaps just functional. So it might strike us as odd that in the seven I am statements of John, that one of the statements Jesus makes is that he is the gate. That he chooses to reveal himself to his people, to the world, as the gate. However, we have to take it seriously because all that we know about God is what he has chosen to reveal to us. So if Jesus tells us that he is the gate, we should be listening carefully. And perhaps you too, maybe will be excited by gates by the end of this morning. So let's read together from John 10, 7 to 9, where this revelation comes from. John 10, 7 to 9. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, And so in this passage, Jesus continues this nice analogy of sheep and shepherd that Melinda's going to unpack for us next week. But at the end of this statement, he seems to say fairly plainly what he has come for, what he is on earth for. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Which is one of the statements I think best sums up the gospel. The whole gospel, it's about life. But it feels like a weird transition. When I think of gates, I don't think of them as particularly life-giving. But as I've been preparing for this sermon, as I've been looking at the topic of gates throughout the Bible, the Bible seems to regularly link gates with life. As an example, I read from Psalm 118, 17 to 21. I will not die, but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. There several examples like that. But perhaps the most exciting gate imagery from within our Bibles comes from the final few pages. The picture of the new Jerusalem that we find in Revelation. I'm going to read from Revelation 21 a couple of longer excerpts. Verses 10 to 15, and then skipping down to 21 through 27. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. And skipping down to verse 21. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl the great street of the city was of gold as pure as transparent glass I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it on no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there the glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. I hope if you weren't excited about gates before, these sort of gates pique your interest. A gate that's a single pearl, I mean, I would have, I would have been much more excited about our house if we had pearl between each room. I keep that there full time. But just in case we haven't sort of jumped around the Bible enough already this morning, clearly what I think this picture in Revelation is doing is restoring the picture of Eden from our first few pages of the Bible. We could do a whole series, we could probably spend years looking at how the end of Revelation mirrors the Garden of Eden in the first few pages of Genesis. But these open gates clearly are being juxtaposed against our banishment from Eden last passage I just want to read from quickly is Genesis 3, 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life, and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. We've jumped around the Bible a bit there, but I think within this framework it becomes clear why gates become associated with life. Because from the fall, humanity have found themselves not having access to God that they had in the very good creation. They no longer walk with him in the cool of the afternoon, they no longer have free access to the tree of life god has placed his angels in the in the way to ensure that humanity is removed from his immediate presence and from life and the restoration of this brokenness is what the whole story of god of what the whole gospel is about it's about life we have been cast out from the original temple and the world into which jesus came the Israelites are acutely aware that the fall has meant that their access to God is now mediated. Most of God's people cannot enter the Holy of Holies in the temple. They're hidden behind a thick curtain. The gates, the courts, the curtains, the very walls of the temple are designed to remind Israel of the holiness of God. But it's also a stark reminder that there are a few steps removed from him. And it's only through various sacrifices and rituals that certain priests could enter the Holy of Holies, and even then they could only enter for a certain time. And so the language of gates, particularly gates that give access to God and to life, is particularly important to the people of Israel. Which is why when we come to the Gospel of John and hear what to many of us would be a benign statement, I am the gate, it draws a pretty strong reaction from all those listening. Further on, after talking about being a shepherd, some respond by saying, Jesus is demon-possessed. Others counter by saying, the things he's saying, the things he's doing are the things that only God himself can do. That's not my first reaction to hearing someone say they're the gate. But in declaring himself the gate, particularly the gate that brings life, Jesus is revealing he is the one who brings access to God. He is the one that brings true life, which is a bold claim to say the least. The picture we have at the beginning of our Bible of being cast out from the garden, no longer having access, immediate access to God, to the tree of life, to eternity, and the picture at the end of open gates into the temple. The thing that changes between those two pictures is Jesus. And Jesus came to bring that life which is a confronting statement to say to a people who are lost and wandering a people who are waiting for the gate a people who know they're standing with God we can't forget the story of Israel the world into which Jesus stepped there are people whose history involves being lost disoriented wandering there are people who are enslaved in Egypt and God came and saved them delivered them. what happened next, they wandered around the desert aimlessly until a generation died out. Then they finally reached the promised land that God had given them. And even then they went through seasons of good kings and bad kings, of God forsaking them and returning. There are people, when Jesus comes on the scene, who will once again find themselves under oppression, under the rule of another nation, subject to the whims of Caesar. And yet they still know that they need God. They need life. They need the gate. I'm not sure if you've ever found yourself lost, wandering, disoriented, looking for a door, a gate, something of that sort. Mark shared with us last week, desperately looking for a path in the middle of the night, and the relief that comes when the torch found it. I was thinking of times when I've been disoriented looking for a gate. A couple of months ago, I woke up in the middle of the night. In our bedroom, I'm on the far wall, Tamara's near the door. But I heard this weird rustling and um, someone was sort of putting their hands, trying to work, out, work their way along the wall. I woke up, tried to work out what was going on and it turns out Tamara had spent a couple of minutes searching for the door. She would got disoriented, managed to circumnavigate the room, was feeling her way everywhere. But she was disoriented, a bit lost, pointing out where the gate was, was some sort of relief. She wanted me to point out when I shared this story that she was sleepwalking that she's not too crazy. But it also took me back to my childhood. Once I went to a mate's house um, and he lived on a farm. I was probably six or seven and after dinner we went out into one of the paddocks um, playing some sort of game. And the family called us back. You could see their house on the hill. They called us in for dessert. And as kids do, I think I was there with him and his sister and one of us yelled out, last one to the house is a rotten egg. We took off running. They sort of veered off to the, off to the side slightly towards the cattle gate. I thought to myself, you fools, the quickest way is a straight line. I'm going to beat you this way. So I ran sort of looking across at where they were going, trying to work out what they were thinking. I was abruptly reminded the reason they were heading for a gate was because there was a barbed wire fence. I lost that race, lost a bit of skin as well. But I was reminded the importance of knowing where the gate is, of what happens if you are wandering, disoriented, lost. And this is where God's people are. They're acutely aware of the reality of the fall, that things are not as they were meant to be in the good creation. They know that they aren't wandering in the cool of the afternoon with God, that they are under the curse of death, and that they don't have access to the tree of life. And into this story, into this reality, steps a carpenter from Nazareth. He shows up and says, I am the gate. I am here to bring life. I will bring it to the full. So we look at the seven statements um, in this series. I think it's easy to focus on the word that comes after the first two. To focus on the gate, the bread, the light. What's equally important is those two words, I am. Jesus doesn't say I will be the gate in the future. Anticipate that. He doesn't say I was the gate and you've stuffed everything up. He says, I am the gate. The gate came and dwelt among us. And we live in light of that. We have access to the gate right here, right now. We have access to God and to life in its fullness right now. That is the kingdom. That is what we get to be a part of. We don't just wait for eternity. We start participating in it now. Which isn't to ignore the reality that we still live in a now but not yet, this weird tension we always talk about. All of us still fall prey to the ways of death, still get attracted to the ways of death. We need protection from the robbers and thieves that are named in this story. I love that picture that we go in and out of the pasture um, in the safety of the day. But sometimes our wise father, our God, will close the gate while we're still inside because the night, the ways of death, they still come. We still need protection. But they're not yet of the now but not yet is the promise of revelation that a time is coming when the gate can be left open freely for there is no night there is no death there is no sin we put those baby gates into our house to protect Jimmy from what he doesn't know the fact that he doesn't know there's a step there and tries to cool right over it the fact that the kettle's really exciting because it's got a blue light and isn't seen as dangerous But if we knew he was safe from all those things, that they didn't pose any sort of danger to him, we'd leave the gate open all the time. We'd love for him to follow us anywhere. Where danger is present, it's wise to have gates that are closed for periods and open for periods. But a time is coming where the gate can be freely left open at all times. That is the tension of the now, but the not yet. But here Jesus promises us and the passage we'll read next week about the sheep and the shepherd says this as well. The gate will be open to us, for the shepherd knows our voice. And all this is nice, we have, but we have to be wary that there are other characters in this story. This isn't just a nice piece on Jesus analogising himself to a gate and saying, come to me. This isn't all fluff, as fluffy as Melinda might think John can be at times. Jesus reveals himself as the gate to the Pharisees, and he warns them of the dangers of robbers and thieves. Those who try to jump the fence, those who don't go for the gate. Perhaps it's easy for us to read this a couple of thousand years later and think maybe the robbers and thieves are others that claim to be the Messiah, people who weren't Jesus. And we have the benefit of now knowing Jesus was the Messiah, we won't make that same mistake. But if it's correct that when we're talking about the gate, when Jesus calls himself the gate, he's offering a way from death to life, then we have to ask ourselves, are there things we do, are there ways we live that pretend that other things offer life other than Jesus? Do we sometimes listen to ideas of materialism? If I just buy that thing, that'll be life-giving. If I get a bit more money, some more influence, if I get a better job, if I can find some more success, if I can empower myself, if I get in this relationship, that will be life giving. Because if we fall prey to those ideas, as I think we all do, we're trying to jump the fence. If we believe something offers us life and it isn't Jesus, aren't we ignoring Jesus' very words here? There is one thing that brings life, there's one thing brings what we all need and that is jesus i think in many ways jesus was saying to the pharisees these people who desperately sought after god yes you have good gifts from god you have the law you have torah you have a priesthood you have sacrifices but ultimately they don't bring you full life your relationship to god it still remains broken these these things bring a taste of the good god but you have to keep returning you have to do a sacrifice each week, each day. I have come so that you may have what all those things couldn't bring. In all their goodness. I have come so that you may have life and have it to the full. The sort of life that doesn't come with a huge list of terms and conditions. We don't come to the gate, click a button and find a hundred pages of things that we're never going to read. It doesn't come with a whole bunch of hoops. There's not 30 gates before we get to the real gate. The gate came to earth, and his words were, come to me, and I will bring you life. And we all know that we need life, don't we? Our world, even ourselves, we do everything we can to pretend we're not ageing. Might chuck some colour in the hair, do these creams that try and get rid of wrinkles. Wrinkles. We go to the gym to try and maintain our youth. We do experiences to recapture our youth. Ultimately, we've said this a few times here at Richmond, I think. Ultimately, we are all decaying. We are all dying. Sometimes we're more aware of that truth than at other times. But in our King, in these words we've read this morning, we remember that the gate to eternal life is open. There will be a new Jerusalem that doesn't have angels with flashing swords guarding it, but whose gates are always open, where night will never come. All of this sounds great in theory. If I'm honest, I've got to admit, there are many times in my week where I try and be a robber and a thief. Maybe buying something will make me a little bit happier today. Maybe if I got this job, it'll be particularly life-giving. If I can get this, do that. I'm sure you do that too. But I think we can all agree, it's dissatisfying, isn't it? It might bring some false sense of life for a day, for an hour, but we know it doesn't bring life. It is Jesus and he alone who brings life. It is Jesus and he alone who is the gate through which we enter into life. The gospel, the whole gospel, it's about life. And Jesus came to earth and said, I am the gate. Come to me for life and life to the full. Your access to me is not restricted. As we sang this morning, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. If you look at your life, are you living in rhythms and patterns that are coming back to the King? Coming to the Father's arms for life? Or do you find yourself seeking to jump the fence? I think we need to consider what do our own patterns and rhythms look like. But a final question I have for you this morning, a final thing to consider is, what is the gospel that we preach? Maybe not in word, but in action. When we tell people of our King, we go into the world and preach in the way we live. Are we saying, there is the gate, go to him? Or are we sometimes tempted to create hoops, to create gates, to make that journey harder? Please don't hear me saying that the gospel doesn't require people to change. How they live. It certainly does. But when I look at Jesus and how he lives, he starts in a particular place. He says, Come to me. Is that the gospel we preach? Go to him. Go to the gate. Later in this same chapter, I think Melinda will probably go into it next week, he says, You are my sheep, and I will lay down my life for you. We know that wasn't just words, we know he lived that. That is our gospel. Life came. Laid down his life. The gate came and we are called to point to that gate. And I don't think our gospel can overcomplicate that point. Which I think we're often tempted to do. Often tempted to sometimes be like the Pharisees. We complicate the fact that Jesus is the only bringer of life. Maybe we don't emphasise the Torah like they did or the law, but we each have things we want to emphasise. Things we want to put people through or say that they should be like. Things that might look like hoops to the outsider. Maybe things that are important along the journey. But I think the song we sang this morning summarises it so well. That is the cry of our our gospel. Come to the altar. The arms are open wide. We no longer need a priest who has to go through certain rituals to be able to come to the altar in the Holy of Holies on our behalf. We aren't separated from the altar by a thick curtain and by walls. The curtain is torn. The gate is open. Life is given and life to the full. The gate came and dwelt among us. We're going to sing those words again this morning. Come to the altar Then we'll come back and pray together.